it's like kind of scary that this dude's going around like just whacking whacking people whacking people off this isn't good fellas hey everybody welcome to another episode of i finally watched this is david and this is alan and i finally watched sunshine uh starting out alan did you look up who wrote this movie I did not look up anything about this movie. So uh, it was directed by Danny Boyle, who is uh, one of my favorite directors. It was written by Alex Garland, who wrote and directed Ex Machina and uh-huh. Annihilation. Ooh. So um, you already told me that you liked it. Spoiler alert for the audience for 30 seconds from now. Um, but I think that's obviously why, because I think Alex Garland is just like, he writes good movies. He, he um, does like specifically uh, science fiction movies because I mean, you know, our first episode doing X Machina is no secret that, you know, I really like that film. And I think we even talked about like some of his past works and even Annihilation, how much I like Annihilation. So that totally makes sense. So there's no surprise that I enjoy this, this movie. You know, though, not only did I like the writing this film, but I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Like for 2007 sci-fi, CGI wasn't, you know, quite what it is today, but they pull off some amazing effects. Yeah, and not only was it 2007, but the budget for this was like 26 million pounds, which for a a sci-fi movie about traveling to the sun and blowing it up is like an astounding amount. Like yeah. astoundingly low, um, to me at least. So, I agree with you. Some of the shots in this, I was, you know, I was just watching it on my TV, and um, you know, I haven't talked about this before, but I, I have a projector set up, and as I was watching on the TV, I was like, I really should have just set that up so I could watch it on that, and I might go back and do it because some of the shots, just specifically of the sun, like from the room that they're all hanging out, and then some of the shots of the ship, are just so beautiful it's like just so amazing to stare at and like some of the most beautiful shots i've seen in a movie period yeah it's incredibly well done do you know if they won any awards for like effects um this was a pretty like at least for me under the radar movie so i don't think it won anything crazy from like the major awards um it did win like best technical achievement at the british independent independent film awards um but nothing like much bigger than that um and and it's also crazy too because like this is a movie i think you had never heard of right right and yet it has uh really quick before i say this how many people are in this film how many act how many how many actors appear in this film you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like eight people? No. No. Did I miscount? You did. So there's eight people on the crew. Okay. There's Pin Backer. That makes okay. nine, right? Yeah. Um, I won't count the voice of the ship, but the voice of the ship was a distinct person. Oh, and his but- sister. And her two kids. Okay, but I mean, your whole point is that there was like a very small cast. So me saying nine. And of the nine people that are really in it, like even the least famous guy, Troy Garrity, who plays Harvey, I've seen in other stuff. But everyone else is like super recognizable to me. So to have a movie that's this kind of small budget, but to have such like a, a pretty cool cast in it, um, is, is it's kind of crazy how under the radar this movie went. Um, and I think that's kind of disappointing just because of how amazing you and I think it is. What, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think this movie is so like overlooked or I guess underlooked in this case? Um, and I think this is probably like, it's probably grown somewhat of a reputation since then, given more people have had the chance to watch it. It's uh it's currently on Hulu uh till the end of the month. So um 
but I think that's just a lot of that probably has to do with advertising, right? Like, I think that can make or break how much a movie makes, how much it like gets into the consciousness of people. And so, you know, that all depends on the studio spent 26 million pounds on this. And maybe they're like, all right, we don't think we're going to get anything back on this. And so we're not going to advertise it as heavily. I think the other thing is it's a, it's a British film, basically. Um, made in Britain. A lot of the, uh, the actors are, are from there. So um, that I think has probably a lot to do with it. Um, why it wasn't as successful in the, in the U S look, I think we talked about this uh, briefly, but you know, I mentioned that this movie reminds me so much of annihilation and now it makes perfect sense because of the same writer. And I know that you and I have talked about, wanting to do Annihilation. You know, I've seen it, you haven't. And I think we totally should. So I don't want to talk about too many of the similarities in Annihilation. I don't want you to talk about any of the similarities in Annihilation, nor do I want you to talk about Annihilation. But all I'm going to say is, um, much like Annihilation, and also if you think about it, Ex Machina, a lot of Garrity's screenwriting... Garland. I think Garrity. Because Troy Garrity's oh, plays Harvey. That's right. Uh, a lot of uh, Garland's screenwriting is like these like heavy sci-fi plots and like, you know, futuristic backgrounds for these movies that deal highly in like uh, psychology, like very high concept human psychology um, you know, uh, under not undertones. One of my one of my like um, themes, themes, motifs. It's like really like um, relatable stuff, but kind of like hidden behind these like you know shiny, fancy, futuristic things. And I just really like I love that about his writings because um, I don't think you're supposed to take this movie like I'm going to sound like a a dweeb here but like what does it all mean right that's how i i watch this movie like what is he trying to say with this and what's happening with this and i think there's a lot of that especially like um i i don't know who plays him but the psychologist on the crew i found him to be like one of the most interesting characters cliff curtis uh searle searle yep yeah no he he is um and I do want to talk about him uh, a little later more in depth, but um, I think the what's one interesting aspect and let's like just get into the top of the movie is you, you, we've talked before about the difference between going into a movie blind and having watched all the trailers or, you know, like, and how like, which is better because sometimes you need the setup of the trailer and this movie just narrates basically the exposition in 30 seconds it's like we sent icarus one seven years ago it failed we've been on icarus two for 16 months we need to blow up a bomb in the sun otherwise earth is going to die boom here's the story um and there's eight crew members on icarus two uh and i think that that is is a pretty like maybe people don't wouldn't like that but i like that it's just like hey you need this base knowledge to get this movie here it is now like let's enjoy the ride and i think it just works really well in this situation because you don't get the bullshit of like you know people talking over a bowl of cereal and someone like throws their bowl and like we've been on here for 16 months on this you know what i mean it just gives you like bullshit exposition lines it's just like here's what you need to know you're right and and honestly i didn't have a problem with uh with the preface in the in the beginning but i feel like even without that if you cut that from the movie and you just started the movie where the you know where you meet the characters and they all start interacting i think maybe like 20 25 minutes in you have already you already get what's happening you know and and that's so much like heavy dialogue exposition uh, but just the the way the script is 
already. Um, I think it would, it wouldn't take a genius to kind of figure out what their situation is without the explanation in the beginning. No. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and you do get some more details like after that, because you get, um, you know, them setting up that in 24 hours, we're going to lose communication. And then you get, uh, Killian Murphy, like explaining to his family, like, Hey, when you get this, this will be the last time I'm, I'm going to talk to you until I will maybe make it back home. Um, but in a few days, uh, you know, just keep waking up every morning. And then eight minutes after, if we're successful, eight minutes later, like the sun's going to be fixed. And, uh, and then that leads into like the confrontation that sort of carries probably i think this is like an hour and 50 minute movie close to it carries like the next hour and 20 minutes of you know chris evans and killian murphy yeah um and i like the relationship too i especially like chris evans character is like really one one note but purposely so right he is like he is almost like more of a robot than anything created like in ex machina just as far as the way he thinks how black and white he sees every situation. Um, and it's really, it's really cool to see it like brought out in such a, like a, a stark way in, in the movie. Yeah. Like he, he's one track minded. It's the mission or it's nothing. And we have to make decisions based on the importance of the mission. And almost like no emotion goes into anything else he does, which I found really cool. But also it makes a lot of sense too, right? Because someone someone on the crew had to be like that because I f- feel like everyone else was um, very emotional and that either led them to be successful um, or that led them to their downfall, right? I think most of the other people are kind of more in the middle, right? I think like this movie, you have these eight characters and they're kind of on a spectrum. And I feel like Chris Evans is on the most logical side. I feel like Kappa played by Killian Murphy is maybe on the exact opposite side or close to it. And you kind of have Harvey over there too. Um, and then- I think Harvey's the most, I think Kappa is actually the only one like smack in the middle. Uh, I think uh, Rose Byrne, is like maybe close to the middle, but a little more emotional. Um, Corazon, uh, played by Michelle Yao. I think she's more in the middle. Canada, which is funny. We had Canada spelled the same way in Akira, and now they pronounce it. I think the crew keeps calling him Canada. Um, I, think, I think it's actually supposed to be Canada in both movies. No, well, there you go. Um, but Canada, I think, is kind of the closest to Chris Evans. Um, and what's interesting too, and we'll get into it in more detail in, in the scenes, but Chris Evans' logic that he uses like never seems to harm himself up until maybe the end. So it's like, and I don't know how you felt in first watching this, but I could see how like when you're first watching this, it's like, oh, he's, he's just saying that because it's like, it still benefits him or it still benefits him. Whereas Canada like risks his life like, pretty immediately in the first time he has to make kind of a decision like that. And then um, you have uh, Chris Evans, who not until they go on Icarus one, and then they're going to have trouble coming back right. where you see him finally like sacrifice himself. And then it's all like, okay, he has from the beginning, like he makes the decision for the 7 billion at home versus, or, you know, this takes place in like 2057. So it's probably like, 10 maybe 11 billion i don't know what the growth rate is but he makes the decision for all those lives and the eight of them that are on the ship are completely expendable if it will help the mission or prevent the mission from failing right and i think that just has to go back to garland's writing of these characters um because even if you refer back to ex machina there's always like there's a sort of formula, right? That like works in between these characters that is in his movies and how they relate to each other. Um, Like, I think, you know, for me, Ex Machina deal with a lot of like ego, right? Who has the biggest ego and then who had, you're right. And so this one is like, like you said, more logical, more emotional spectrum of things. Um, 
if you were to take one end or the other, it's for me, the movie was like, if you're too logical, it screws you up. If you're too emotional, it screws you up. And the only one, the only person who kind of got out of it, the only people who ended up living towards the end of the film were people who didn't let their emotions or like their over logical thinking take over. And then if they did end up dying, it was pinbacker. <laughs> It's always fucking pinbacker. Um, um, but yeah, let's talk about that first thing, right? Because that, that was um, kind of an emotional moment where uh, uh, Killian and Kaneda have to go um, out onto the hole. Well, before that, I do want to bring up a couple points about like the way this movie is set up. Because okay. one, the, uh, the Sun Observatory room that Searle is in is so cool. Yeah. Um, especially like... you. F- I think it's it's really like not purposely using a pun, but it kind of hits you in a, in the face like they the way they explain the power of the sun because he's in the room right and it's bright as can be and the movie does a great job of of enveloping you in the sun the same way he is and he's like Icarus, what is this? What percentage are we at? She's like two percent, and he's like, all right, put it up to four. She's like, four will kill you. I can go up to 3.1% for 30 seconds and then you'll die. Like, it's just like how powerful the sun is. And then you find out they have like an earth room that they right. can go into for like, for psychological purposes to kind of keep them more grounded. I would have um, just stayed there like <laughs> for 16 months for 16 months. Um, and then you, you find out, I, I'm curious how, how far into the movie before you realized it was Mark Strong? When I looked it up on IMDb. Yeah, I don't think I knew it was Mark Strong in the beginning. And I obviously like, I, in watching this, I haven't seen this in over a decade. And so well, I forgot it was Mark Strong, but I picked all, it up very quickly not even, this time. He's not even introduced until they're on Icarus 2. I mean, Icarus 1. He talks in a video. On Icarus 1. No, in the big, more in the beginning. Uh, Canada is listening to a video where he's talking and you don't really know it's him. Oh. Um, and then when they get to Icarus one, they wipe the dust off the, off the wall and it's a picture of the old crew. Yeah. Um, the other thing, did you notice the, like the subliminal messages cut in as soon as they got on Icarus one? Did you notice that? Yep. That was I don't remember if I noticed the like before when I had watched this, but like that seeing it this time was very like creepy and effective. It's so strange too. Cause it's literally like a couple frames and it's so quick and it's just pictures of the first picture we see of the whole crew. Like when they're all like wearing the funny hats and stuff, but yeah, it's right. just cut, cut in and out of those, of those photographs. Uh, the other thing that happens in the beginning of the ship, um, once again, we were talking about like beautiful images, but when they're going around Mercury and they get to see Mercury like uh, next to the sun um, and they're just showing, you know, life on the ship. But a thought I had is like when you're first watching this movie, and I don't know if this is the way you saw it, but it's kind of like this is a space movie. This obviously isn't the Martian where everything turns out all right. So who is going to cause the problem? And I think they painted as like maybe Kappa, um, maybe Searle, maybe a lot Chris Evans, uh, who plays Mace, you know, because he fights Kappa. Um, He has to apologize. The apology is very funny where he just actually doesn't apologize. And Kappa's like, is that your apology? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, then accept it if that was it. Um, But I think all that set up for then when they get the distress signal, I think is really key because it's like, who is going to fuck this up? Like who's going to, who's going to ruin this mission, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I like who it ended up being because you, it makes sense looking back, but it's such a surprise um, when it happens and, and that doesn't happen for a while, but um Maybe maybe I take back on like what I said about Chris Evans being the most logical, less emotional one because he does get into a lot of fights. 
he gets into fights because he can't understand why people would think uh, differently than him. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's more like a frustration. Too. Right. The, um, the trouble starts, though, right, with Chris Evans' character a bit. Or, yeah, I guess it would be because... Um, they well, Harvey, want... Harvey tells them about the transmission that's from Icarus 1, right? It's all Harvey's fault. I'm okay with blaming that douchebag. Well, I think one thing that doesn't really get said in this movie, but I think the blame can be spread around, spread around pretty evenly, even to Chris Evans, right? So Harvey tells them about the transmission, which really, you know, not his fault. And then uh, Mace, Chris Evans is like, well, we shouldn't go there. That's, you know, that's not going to help the mission. And then Searle, uh, who's the psychologist was like, well, but as a, you know, as a, just a a counterpoint, that's a second payload we may be able to use, which is, I guess a good point, but at the same time, it's like, all right, well, if that ship, if that ship couldn't drop the payload, then why do you think you can go on there and check it? I mean, I guess you don't think there's a psychotic maniac, (laughs) like still stuck on that ship. But it is like it is definitely a gamble, right? And so Searle putting out out there, you can blame him, right? But then Chris Evans saying, "Hey, we don't get to vote on this. The person who knows the best should decide," which is Kappa, um, which is kind of Chris Evans' fault because you shouldn't put Kappa in charge of that. And then you could blame Kappa for making the decision, but you know he goes into that, you know, into the computer system is like, "What are our chances of success?" And she's like. The chances are like 45%, which means like it's 45% that we do this, which means after that, the variables are so crazy that I can't even tell you what the percentage chances of, of getting it right. And he even tells the captain, he's like, I can't, it's not a decision. It's a guess. Like I'm guessing which is going to be more correct. And he just, you know, he guessed wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> I guess... Yeah, that's true. But let's be real, David. The person to blame is Benedict Wong. Yeah, man, you got to do the math right. You just, you can't fuck up the math. I mean, that's your job. So Benedict Wong plays Trey. And, uh, you know, they're they're changing their course to go to uh, see Icarus 1 and try to do something there. And so they change their course, but then Trey, who's, I guess, the engineer, right? Or he's the, I don't know what job, something like that. Uh, He miscalculated so that the shields, I guess, protecting the ship from the sun's intensity. So this confused me. Did some just not get turned over or did some like actually malfunction? So he didn't adjust the shield for their new trajectory. So he just forgot to do it. But there's only like five. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, following the science on some of this is a little hard. Um, But I guess because of the way the shield got hit, like a a few of the shield parts like blew. And so this sets off a chain reaction of like shit going wrong because they now have to fix that. In order to fix that, they have to send someone out there um, and they have to adjust the shield and give up part of the another part of the ship so that they can work on fixing it uh, for this new course, right? Right. So, like this one mistake. This I talked about this a little bit on the Martian about how, like, in space, one tiny error, one like just not thinking about one aspect, and you're dead. And because of that, Benedict Wong killed all of them. Yeah. Eventually, spoiler alert, a hundred percent. And so it starts out with, you know, the shields going awry and, and, and malfunctioning. So, you know, not one, but two crew members have to go outside and fix them. And they ended up being Kappa and Kaneda. Well, cause Mace, uh, Chris Evans said Kappa has to go, which is a little bit like, Hey, Benedict Wong, Trey is not responsible for this. You are. So you go out there and help fix it. But that doesn't make sense either because later on in the line, he deemed Kappa as like the most valuable crew member um, when they did make it to Icarus 1. 
That's why he's the only one in the suit, right? So why would you risk his life to go out there then? That's a good point. Uh, I feel like maybe he thought it wasn't that dangerous. He didn't realize like what was going to happen. I will say though, like once shit kind of hits the fan and they realize, um, you know, Kaneda tells Kappa to start heading back early, even though he knows like Kaneda, I think realizes very quickly that he's not going to make it. Um, and you know, Mace once again makes the the decision of like, you know, they're about to override the ship because they're losing all their, their plants, which, you know, give them oxygen. Um, and so, you know, they're going to re the ship starts like fixing itself overriding. Cause it's like the ship's like, you're killing yourselves and they want to save Canada and cat and Mace is like, Hey, Canada, you got to back me up. Like we're going to, we're going to fuck our mission up. If they, if we override the ship and Canada's like, right, don't do it. And there is like where Canada makes the logical choice, but is also losing from it, like losing his life. Right. Yeah. Where at this point, Chris Evans hasn't done that. Right. And, and so we get our first example of that and the effects with people like evaporating in the sun is like so awesome. Um, well, the same with like the, the way the plants get burned up and you know, Corazon is like really into the plants. So she kind of runs down to go check on them and wants to like, run in there and somehow put out the fire <laughs> and if she did the emotional motivation that she uses there would have killed her right absolutely so here's the thing right they had to give up part of the ship to go out there and put the shields down and then they couldn't do that in time so kappa runs back early he lives Kaneda is successful in doing that but he dies at the same time the ship the part of the ship that they gave up is like swinging around like a pendulum. It like reflects a bit of sunlight, which causes like a laser beam to like cut into the oxygen plant room. And so then that explodes. So now at that point they've realized like, uh, we're not coming back from this or at least like at the tiniest bit, the slimmest of chances only three of us are. Well, no, it's so there's seven people. Four of us are. No, there's seven people left and they don't have enough oxygen to make it to the sun. They have enough oxygen for four people to make it to the sun, um, meaning that three people won't. And so Harvey's only response to that is like, well, Icarus one is now like our only hope. And, you know, uh, Corazon and and Chris Evans are like, yeah, now like, you know, something's going to have to happen. Well, well, before we do get to like the next logical point is the going to Icarus one. I do think like, you know, they start fixing the panels and Canada is like, Oh, we're, we're doing this. And there's like joy on the ship. And that is like such short lived, but you get the line from Mace to Benedict Wong, like, don't kill yourself, man. We got this. It's like, Oh shit. <laughs> Um, the other thing too is, and I think we can talk about it now because Searle's about to meet his end, but Searle uh, yelling to Canada, Canada as he's about to die, what's the sun like? Like, just tell me, like, you're already going to die. Like, what's the sun like? And the, the thing that really struck me watching it this time is that the only difference between Searle and Pinbacker is like the amount of time. Oh, like, yeah. It feels like Searle is on the exact same trajectory as Pinbacker. A hundred percent. The other great thought before we get to Icarus one is what Rose Byrne says, uh, who plays Cassie. And she was talking about the difference between thinking you're going to die and the difference between knowing you're going to die. And it's like when they went on this mission to the sun, they're like, there is a huge chance we will die. But now they've gotten to the point where only four of them can even possibly make it to the sun on the oxygen they have. And they know they're going to die. They know there's no return trip. And it's like, she's like, you know, talks about that difference. And that difference is obviously hope because even if you think statistically, I have like a 20% chance of making it home when that percentage chance goes down to zero, you know, it's zero and you like, no, I'm going to die. And like, I think that was just a really, there's a lot in that one little line that she delivers. Yeah. I thought that was like, kind of like the heart of the movie in a way. Um, it's it's also crazy too because that's like we're probably halfway in the movie and 
we know there's no chance of anyone surviving. And once again, maybe as the audience, we can hold on to hope like, oh, something crazy is going to happen. But it's just from that point on, it's like less and less like, okay, no, these people are going to die. No one's making this return trip. Yeah, I was, I was telling someone about this movie and I said like something that gave away that they all died. And the, the guy was like, oh, so they all died. And I was like, yeah, but that's not like, like who cares, right? Because that's not really the point of the movie. Um, the, it, it's, it, it's, the, uh, it's not the destination, it's the journey right well it's the it's the accomplishment right and i think chris evans does a good job of like instilling in the audience like do not care about us care about the mission yeah and i think that makes the loss of these people throughout more palatable i i would agree especially harvey (laughs) so we get on icarus one um I love the line of like, oh, let's, you know, let's not split up. And, and Chris Evans like, what do you think aliens are going to pick us off one by one? Um, which once again, like just really like predetermining what's going to happen uh, with Benedict Wong and then with now. Um, and this is where we start getting the, the Mark Strong images spliced into the movie, which are really fucking creepy. And like, just like something I haven't seen like in a movie, definitely not before this. And I don't, I can't recall seeing it ever. Um, I just think it's really effective. But it wasn't all him spliced in. It was like photos of, of um, like pictures of them, like all happy, like at the beginning of their trip spliced in. Well, it's in. the same picture over and over. And it's mostly focusing on him. And then when they wipe off all the dust on that one spot, you see the picture of everyone. And they do not focus in on Mark Strong, which is I think why, the, why it's so easy to not realize it's him. And I think he even maybe has hair in the photo. Um, the other thing too is like, why would there be that much dust? It was ashes. Right. When you're first watching, you're like, why is there so much dust? Because they're like, oh, dust is mostly made up of human skin. It's like, well, even if they die, but then you see like the scene in the observatory. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of undetermined things in this movie. And I think one of the like coolest slash horrific is did those people go in that room to die? Like sort of in a let's commit suicide. Let's just determine when we go and die now. Or did Pinbacker lock them in that fucking room, turn off the ship so that the shield went completely away on that observatory room and just killed them. And as they're like huddled together. And I think that's like one of the more chilling, like what happened in their moments in this. Yeah. And talk about desecrating a body, right? Like they get in there and they've been like there, what the the dead bodies like um like Pompeii, right? They're just like there in their own ashes, and then of course like someone trips and hits them, and they just all start um uh crumbling away. Right. Well, and then as the arm crumbles, like the ship breaks off, and at that point. Pinbacker, you realize, like, you don't know this, but I guess you know this that Pinbacker has, like, made it onto the other ship and has, like, basically tried to make it so none of them can come. Right. Um, The other thing, too, and we talked about, like, the Searle Searle Pinbacker connection, but one thing that really brought it to my attention was did you notice how burnt Searle's face was? Yeah. And it was more burnt when he was on Icarus One. It's, like, more noticeable. Right because he keeps spending time in the sun and then pinbacker's face is just completely fucked because of how much time he spends in the sun. Yeah. I, you know, actually now you, now you talking about it, it makes a lot of sense. I was wondering throughout the movie, like how does this, how did he get his face so messed up? But yeah, because he spent all that time in the observatory. Um, and then he just kills himself on Icarus one, right? He realizes that he's the one who has to stay back. Right. Well, as Harvey's like being a bitch, like, what, you guys think it's going to be me? Because first he tells Kappa to take off the suit as they explain to him that Kappa is the only person that matters because he's the only one that can detonate the bomb. Yet you should put him outside the ship on the shields. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, Mace was mad. So maybe for one one second he made the bad decision. Um, And then, uh, but apparently they just decide to wrap themselves in the material of the ship and they're going to shoot across... uh, but they need Searle to stay back. And I like Searle, 
it's it's cool because Searle's like, I already know we're all gonna die, right? No one's making it home. So the best we can do is is save the world. So I'm fine dying now. You guys can die later. I'll just die now and I'll go look at the sun. You know, it's right. the way I'd would would want to go. Um and then you get like a probably the most satisfying death of when they shoot out and it's just Harvey. Harvey's not not didn't make it. I like the realization that he's like, well, I should be in the ship by now. And he takes off the the stuff and he's like, oh shit. Starts freezing over. Well, and they purposely obviously make Harvey like they give you his asshole moment right before he dies, which is totally like movie shit to do to like make you not care about someone dying. Because before that, Harvey hadn't done anything wrong. He was just, he was just a nothing character. Right. And then he just being like, a total little bitch. Well, the other thing that doesn't make sense too with Harvey is he's fighting so that he can live for three more days. I think he was still cleaning on to like, he could still make it. I don't know. Well, the other thing, if you think about it though, is, and I don't, I don't, do they even show Searle die? Maybe, I guess they do. He Does he go into the room and burn up, right? He goes into the room and turns it to a hundred percent. Right. But if you stayed in the rest of the ship, you could live there for years. You would be in solitude, but there's food. There's enough oxygen to last you for forever. Those plants are there. So that's true. Harvey could Harvey could have lasted longer if he stayed on the ship. I mean, on Icarus One. But I mean, yeah. But then say like him and him and Cyril wanted to stay on the ship together, right? They could have um, been together, not been in solitude, and then just lived out their, their, their days. I guess their oxygen supply would have been cut in half. Maybe. Those plants look like they were doing very well. I guess the only thing would be their food supply would be cut in half. Um, but then you have the fact that Searle just kind of wanted to die. I felt like that. Right. Um, the other thing, I, they don't really explain. There's a lot of like, I think the the ships are really cool. You definitely get like a view of like how massive these things are and the design of having this really long ship behind this huge shield to protect you from the sun is just so cool. But the logistics of how the ship works is like really lost. And I've watched this movie four or five times and I still don't understand it. I actually thought the shield was the bomb. (laughs) Like I didn't understand where the bomb was located and then I thought the shield was behind them. But now I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense because the shield has to be in front of them. But then, yeah, it was just kind of like complicated. It also just looks like Icarus 1 is just floating behind the shield. Yeah, doesn't it? And I, I like it was very confusing to me on, on what was, uh, how that was working. The next important part is them deciding Benedict Wong's future. And I really remembered this as Rose Byrne saying you can kill him and Kappa saying not. But when Kappa says you want me to weigh one life versus the future of mankind, he's like, no, just kill him. I was like, oh shit, wow. <laughs> um, and then I like how Chris Evans like gets the no from Rose Byrne. He's like, well, I'm still fucking doing it. So this is yeah. was- and then just to keep Chris Evans as the good guy in every fucking thing he is, uh, he doesn't even have to do that. So this is, a, I guess, a, a, an unanswered question in the movie. But what did you think? Did Benedict Wong kill himself or did Pinbacker kill him? Uh, I, thought, I thought Benedict Wong killed himself. So I actually thought that Pinbacker might have done it. But in order for you to think that, you would have to think that Pinbacker was listening in, heard that, the, that, that Benedict Wong was suicidal and then tried to make it look like a suicide. Right. So there is some like logical steps that may be missing. Um, apparently, like the director, Danny Boyle, thinks that Pinbacker killed him. But then like the, cons- the space consultant that they used says, oh, that doesn't make sense. He killed himself which I don't know why that guy gets to say. But I, I do think it's cool, once again, that it's just this thing that's left unsaid of like, 
yeah, he could have killed himself or Pinbacker could have killed him. And it's like just left up in the air of like, like, you know, it's this like fucked up thing that could have happened either way. It's fucked up, but then it's like, it could be like, it's like kind of scary that this dude's going around, like just whacking, whacking people. Whacking people off. This isn't good fellas. Um, okay. So a couple of things, right? One, you're absolutely right. He would have had to know that he was suicidal and then he would have to know that they knew he was suicidal and then stage it as a suicide. But then the other big tell where I think Benedict Wong just kills himself is when Pinbacker is chasing down Roseburn and she hides in the same like shower room that Benedict Wong killed himself in. And you can, you know, Pinbacker can see the shadow of a person there. If he killed him in that spot, wouldn't he know that it was Trey? And not Roseburn. This may be one of the best points you've ever made on one of our podcasts. Wow. Thank you. High praise. Yeah, so definitely. I, I mean, because he stabs, as soon as the lights come back on, he stabs Benedict Wong. You could say that maybe he he's not, he would have thought maybe they moved the body and like she's still hiding there or whatever. And he's definitely psychologically fucked up. But that is like a very powerful argument that, yeah, he didn't know. Um, I thought they found out about Pinbacker way earlier being on the ship, but it's only 30 minutes left. But it is like, you told me that this was like kind of like one of the crazier like parts to you and just like well done. But when he's talking to Icarus and he's like, hey, we have enough oxygen. She's like, no, you don't. He's like, we have enough oxygen for four people. Well, that's correct. But there's five people. And it's, he's like, the, it's the most chilling. It's the fucking chillingest part of the whole movie. And then he's like, where is this fifth person? Like observation deck. And like, oh shit. Like he's going immediately there. Like, no, yeah, that's so, so fucking well-written. And so. And Mark, well Mark executed. Strong, they did it so smart, right? Cause that's a bright ass room. So it's like, you can, you're kind of like the characters you as the audience through the cam- the lens of the cameras, also kind of like partially blinded in that room when you when when uh uh killian walks in there but then um what i love about that is that i don't know about you david but whenever there's like a villain right especially like almost like a a monster villain if they're standing up and they're looking all menacing and you can see like a hundred percent of them and they're scary as fuck. That's scary, right? But when you walk into a room and you can barely see the villain and they're lying on the ground in the fetal position, to me, there's a mystery in there that's just like 10 times scarier than seeing them like full on. Right. Um, I agree. One question I have about this is so Kappa sees him in there, goes to talk to him, Pinbacker pulls a knife, which did Pinbacker pull that knife before Wong pulled his knife to kill himself? Did Pinbacker kill Benedict Wong and then pull his knife, another knife second after that? That also is like, uh huh, you know what happened there? Um, Wait, so I have a theory about that. Do tell. So, and maybe this is the part you're talking about. Maybe we're just lost in communication here. But. When Chris Evan goes to kill Benedict Wong, he opens up like a little drawer, right? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. That's what you were talking about? How there was already two knives missing? Right. Okay. So what I'm saying is that's obviously the knife he stabs Kappa with. Did he grab that knife after Benedict Wong killed himself? And if he did, then he probably saw Benedict Wong was there. Or did he kill Benedict Wong and grab another knife? to then you know stab other people with yeah i forgot about that part that is the question isn't it but the real question is after he stabs kappa and kappa starts running away kappa says icarus you know turn up to 100 percent, and then does the dial how does mark strong pinbacker even survive a second in that i am uh, first of all that was fucking awesome i loved every moment of that um and also why not like Icarus, lock observation room, turn to 100%. (laughs) 
My only theory is that Mark Strong has probably been like slowly um, building up a sort of immunity to the sunlight. And so like he was also running out from behind him, right? So even at 100%, maybe he, he spent like not even a whole second in there. Maybe he got out like before anything could have really, I mean, David, you saw his body. It was like no more damage could have been done. Yeah, I know, but when when 4% would kill you immediately and then this is a 100%, like that is the part where you're like, all right, what what happened here? What uh maybe he got out before it really hit is, is well, an let argument. Me, let me ask you this. If you're in a room and you're sitting in this room and somehow 4% of the light coming in this room would kill you. Do you think 100% would just fucking blow a hole in the in the space shuttle? I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's built that way. So I, I don't know. And also like this observation room, that's the other crazy thing that shows you about like the power of the sun is depicted in this is like that observation room isn't like facing the sun, right? Cause the shield is in between it and the sun. So this is facing like basically out somewhere still blocked by the shield but still indirect sunlight from this distance is that powerful, right? Yeah. And they're only at that point when the movie starts, I think they said that they're 2%. So, no, no, no. I was going to say there's something like a 36 million miles away still. No, I didn't catch that part, but yeah, yeah I mean, either way. Yeah. They said that they're, they've been traveling for 16 months and they've traveled, you know, something like, um, like, 75 million miles away from earth and that they only have like 35 million to go which is crazy too because the movie is only like what two hours long and so in this and it almost happens in real time right so in the span of like that much time i guess like a couple of days um well that's not real time is it but um in a couple of days they've already reached the sun and i think it's i think it's supposed to be longer than that because you're not traveling millions of miles a day um the end of the last like 25 30 minutes of this movie though are just like non-stop this is i think what makes this movie kind of a horror movie it's just this last 30 minutes of pinbacker like running around fucking up the ship uh killing corazon after she you this is once again you had a little hope when uh Kaneda was fixing the ship now she finds this one little bud of life and you're like oh maybe and then she gets stabbed and killed and like that one little bud means nothing but that does corazon getting killed does mean there's four people so now like they can easily make it to uh to the destination yeah um but then well hold on here because Corazon is an interesting kind of character in this, right? Because we've already established the logical thinking of most of the people on the ship. But she almost has like a like an outside um, obsession, right? With these plants. These plants are like her life. And she knows the importance of them. Um, and she would have like sacrificed herself jumping in there, crying when uh, Chris Evans had to like turn on the oxygen in there and burn it all up. But um, do you, do you, would you say that her lack of attention of someone like sneaking up behind her and her like full concentration on this like one little bud of, uh, of greenery was like her downfall? Well, once again, she doesn't know about Pinbacker making it on there. So it's like, who are you expecting to come stab you? Yeah. I guess that's true. I just felt like, like, so he chases Killian Murphy, and then Killian Murphy just runs and gets himself stuck, which is like, you know, you've been fucking up a lot, Kappa. So, uh, and this is just like the final thing. And so now, Pinbacker can just run around the ship, fucking things up. Like he pulls the mainframe out of the cold, like cooling water. He kills Corazon. And so now he's like, he's trying to get a hold of Mace and like, he's able to get Mace and that the part where Chris Evans is like putting the mainframe back in the cold water, I think is, is just like really cool. And like the first time you're watching, like, is he going to be able to do it? Like, I think it's really, it creates a lot of tension. 
um, really you, well. So he wasn't Pinbacker wasn't really after Mace, right? He was he's after Rose Byrne at this point. He's after anarchy and making sure that they don't complete their mission because I Pinbacker says like he just wants to be left him and God. He wants to be like the final human being, so it's just him and God, and so he is destroying the ship and then he just happens to see Rose Byrne. So he just hasn't run across Mace. So he almost doesn't even know to look for Mace because how would he know who's on Icarus 2? Right. No, exactly. Um, but I guess what I was saying is that like uh, during the time that Mace is putting the mainframe back in the coolant and Kappa is stuck in the... What is that? Like a... It seems like a hookup for like going outside or, or just, you know, it's like similar to the other side when they hooked up to Icarus uh, right, 1. Right. Like an escape uh, exit or something. Um, while all this is happening, Pinbacker's like proactively after Cassie. Right. And then she, uh, as soon as the, the first mainframe goes down and the lights come on, he stabs Wong. And then she stabs him a lot. Very many times. I enjoyed that. She she was good. She like she wasn't even like aware. Like I was so worried for her because she she was like dead asleep, right? And she woke up to this like dude on the end of the hallway and she's like, Well, you're bad. I'm gonna run away from you now. Right. With like with like no warning of like, oh, who are you? Or like no question, like, okay, you're bad. I got it. Right. And then the next thing is, in order to get out, you know, Mace has pretty much saved the mainframes, except he, he gets his leg trapped, and so he dies from that. So let me um, ask you, did you feel like that was a little, like, underhanded? Like, did you feel like that was a cheap way to go for, for his character? Well, so apparently, originally, he was just supposed to die because he was putting in the mainframes and the cold water froze him. And then uh, Danny Boyle thought, like, he's too powerful of, a, like of a guy to just die because of cold water. So that's why his leg got stuck. Um, which the legs getting stuck thing makes sense is because he was starting to move so slow. He didn't get out of the way in time. Um, so like, you know, that worked for me, but Kappa like blowing the airlock so that he can get out. I was like, and then Corazon's body just like going past him. So that was like, apparently a very like well-made, uh, dummy. Yeah. And no, I mean, it looked exactly like her. But what, what that made me question is, like, how much air is he taking out? Because they already don't really have a lot of oxygen. And it's like, is that, that's not obviously taking the whole ship, but that's taking, like, a good portion of it, right? Like, there's certain areas that are, like, cut off and, like, the, you know, zones that'll, you know, that the oxygen can be held in, right? Because he right. has to move through the suit. Um, but I was like, all right, well, you're already real low. So it's like, how much did you just fuck up by doing that? And he actually has to wear, I think that that took out all the oxygen in the ship, except for the payload. Cause he wears that uniform, you know, he goes in, sets up the, like hits the button to where they only have four minutes left. And then he goes to the payload and like, you know, <laughs> like jumps from the, the ship leaving to the payload, which is really cool. So at that point, um, I am hella confused, right? Because I think the last time we see Cassie and Pinbacker is she's like stabbing him multiple times, right? We see, but we do also see her, we see her go into the payload area. I, it's a quick shot, but we do, and that's, that's the, the thing I was saying about how like following the logistics of this ship are a little bit confusing, but the, the area where it's got kind of like the, the scaff, not scaffolding, but like the, the section where it's like got these, like this cross of planks and it's where, um, it's where Killian Murphy ends up like kind of dying in the end when he sets off the bomb. I think you see Cassie walk into that area like to escape from Pinbacker. But she does so and, cl- and locks the door behind her. So my question is, how does Pinbacker get in there? Because that kind of like, we leave that scene, right? We leave them and now we're focused on, on uh, Kappa, Cecilia, uh, Killian Murphy. And he does this thing. He releases the payload into the sun. And I love this thing that he like, he jumps, right? From the, from the sh- Icarus to the payload. 
gets inside and now it's just hurtling to like the innards of the sun. And this thing must be like, what, a thousand percent heat proof? Yeah, I don't know. Well, you could also, are the visuals of it actually going into the sun right now or are the visuals of it like in his mind of like how close it is to the sun? Um, the other question is, it's like, if this is going into the middle of the sun, do you need to set it off or would it be set off by itself and explode? You know, with the sun's just the overall. So I think you need to set it off because it's not like a bomb. Like, well, I know that's the, you think that's, it's a bomb. That's the movie logic. I was just wondering if in real life would it, oh. um, in movie logic, they used so many minerals from the earth that they made the first one and they made the second one and there's no minerals. <laughs> there's no like components to make a third payload. Yeah. Um, but here's where the movie kind of lost me. And I literally had to rewind a little bit to be like, whoa, did I miss anything? Because he makes it into the payload and we just leave Pinbacker and Cassie as far as I was concerned, at least. And I was like, that's just, and then we see the ship like going off and burning up in the distance. And I get, I was like, I guess their story is done. Um, but no, I was wrong because they both somehow end up in the payload along with Killian Murphy. Um, and the the big ending fight, which is so cool, right? Because like that, that switch of gravitation and it's like one end is like the flat top and then all of a sudden, because I mean, you're hurling through space, you're hurling through the sun. Who knows what the top is and what the bottom is, you know? Well, this is like the top and the side. Um... And I do think the way the the ending is shot too when they're in the payload area is so like visually interesting and like it's almost kind of like dreamlike and you there's no like the camera doesn't focus a lot on anything, especially pinbacker. Um and so I think that's it's really like it kind of adds to the intensity, but it also adds to the confusion of what's going on. Um Killian Murphy just finds Cassie kind of sitting in the middle and like very kind of sluggish. Right. And it almost seems like Pinbacker's kind of already attacked her and maybe like left her as bait. I never really thought about that before, but it's like she's just left there. Killian finds her and then Pinbacker's like on him immediately and is so strong that he's able to lift him up with one hand. Would you say he's Mark strong? So then Cassie um, helps out and they rip Mark Strong's skin straight off his arm and fall. Yep but then stop once they get to the middle, like and the gravity catches up or something. All this is to say that they are successful in their mission and you don't really know that they are, except like the ending of this, once again, just ending on such a beautiful shot of the fire exploding in the middle of the payload as uh, Killian Murphy sets it off. And you kind of think like maybe Mark Strong is going to figure out a way to make it in there, but now he doesn't. And like, it's it's really interesting to have the ending is obviously visually beautiful, but to have such like a happy ending to a movie that had almost no happiness in it at all. Well, also because like it's bittersweet, right? Because you you've connected to these characters in one way or another. You know, we we're following these characters. We're not following the others, you know, five point nine 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 two billion people on earth so in a way it's like we only care about what happens to our characters that we're that we're following that the story is about um so they all die so that's bitter but then it's like okay but they save earth and then i guess it's like you could even think like Kappa knowing he's going to die, but his sister and his nephews are safe. That's kind of a nice sentiment. Right. Well, and if you think about this, the way Mace, Chris Evans, like wants the way he thinks about it and the way it's kind of like we're supposed, he wants us to think about it is saving earth is the part we should care about. And so like, if you once again, follow his logic and his thinking and you know, Kaneda's thinking um, in the end, Kappa's thinking that should make you happy. Um, and it is really cool. Like you see his sister and kids in the snow. She's like watching the video where he explains like, you know, eight minutes after we're successful, you'll know. And then they look up and they see the sun and then like just the brightness hits. Yeah. 
is not what I expected to happen, but I, I really like that ending. And then you see like completely snow enveloped Sydney, Australia, just to really like put it home, like how dire things were. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I really appreciate the ending. It's, it's, it's a somewhat very happy ending, especially after watching Ex Machina, which is a very like fucked up ending. <laughs> <laughs> to see to see something like this is is interesting. Does it question you if his sisters is in Aus- Australia? Why didn't Kappa have an Australian accent? Not really. She could have moved there. Okay. You know how hard it is to move to Australia. Not when the world's dying, probably. <laughs> Free real estate. <laughs> um. No, but I mean, overall, it, it's you know, like I have to, I have to say, like you know, I love. Uh, garland's writings but the the cinematography for this movie is the thing that really got me um absolutely beautiful i really liked it and for not knowing at all what this movie was about i really enjoyed like uh taking in the story for the first time you know right i kind of forgot how beautiful this movie it was and it's it is like an absolutely stunning movie and one thing I forgot to mention before we wrap up, I do love when you find Benedict Wong's body. I've never seen like you have blood on your hands, like so literally depicted as when Chris Evans grabs the blood off Wong and wipes it on Kappa Killian Murphy's hands. Like I thought that was just kind of a really cool scene. And like, that's just like one example of like how kind of amazing this movie is. And for it to like, take like this science fiction movie and then for the last 30 minutes turn it into this horror movie and then give you like this bittersweet happy ending and just to be visually amazing the whole way through like this is this is such a well done movie well thanks for listening to another episode of i finally watched this is david and this is alan and i finally watched sunshine